Well, Arun, 25 years ago, I opened the Gate of Fitters, an all-Victorian wall garden. It's part of my croft here. The wars were crumbling, and the bonny Tapnersteins were just half far off. The whole area of Gran, that's Arun an acre, was covered in willow herb and brambles and just about every jabby nettle and bush you could imagine. Well, I went again into other adventures we had resurrecting the garden, repairing the Tapnersteins and the wars. But with the help of gardeners and farmers and chums, it's looking an awful lot better. It's smiling again. Who are blossoms, plants and shrubs and colours. Mostly gain by gardeners. And it was the best Kent gardener in Scotland that kept me wrecked with the layout and the plan for the hill garden. Willie Duncan, Faith Fife, said, Frida, just watch the sun and you canna gang wrong. Well, I went wrong a few times, but of course he was wrecked. The garden just wouldn't let me do anything with any plan layout. And it was Willie that explained that the was were built in a Y with contours at each side, sloping down to the wee wa opposite the big 12-foot wa, was specially designed to let the frost out. Now, as you'll hear in this programme, there's more to wall gardens than just plonking up a few steens round a bit of grun. We have a fascinating history and a wisdom of the was in Scotland. But more later. Rech new? Time to join the team in their virtual nukes. And as we wander, enjoy the music for a new CD called Relentless, just like the relentless work that went on here in this garden. This is a CD for Kyle Warren, courtesy of Green Tracks Records. And this is Stukin.
Kyle Warren for his new CD, Relentless. Congratulations, Kyle. It's a cracker. And a very big welcome again to Scots Radio. I'm still Frida Morrison, and let me introduce the team this episode. First, the manny that guides us through the waves in the wheelhouse in Edinburgh from <laughs> B&B Studios. Come in, Richie Werner. Aye, aye. How are we going, folks? You all right, Frida? Oh, we're fine. How did you cope with the big heat? The big heat? Well, I'll tell you what, we, we coped terribly with the big heat. Uh, we were actually on holiday in Berwickshire at the time, and I Ooh. thought, we need to find a swimming pool. We need to be inside and in the water. It's so hot. So uh, I took the, the, the family down to Kelsey, which is <laughs> pretty much where the hottest uh, temperature at the moment in Scotland was recorded, and spent the afternoon in the swimming pool. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> which was great. great. But you had a good holiday. It was amazing. Do you know, we were doing in Berwickshire and crossing into Northumberland and all that area around uh, Coldstream and Berwick and Kelsey. And what a time we had, you know. Absolutely super. The girls loved it. Visited castles and whatnot, but they just wanted to keep on going back to the beach. So who can complain, eh? <laughs> who can complain? Great. Speak later, Richie. Aye. And in the suburbs of Embra, past creator of Embra Botanics and vice chair of the National Trust for Scotland, Welcome our trusted colleague and one who possesses the wisdom of the elders and mayor. Welcome, Dave Mitchell. Hi, Frida. How are you doing? Have you got our lawn heat? Or did he melt? Well, aye. I was actually out in a golf course in the middle. Oh, <laughs> I mean, how can you, tell how can you, you choose a better place to be? No shelter, no nothing. On the golf course. Right, that's going to be your focus this episode. Well, I was going to talk to you about wall gardens. Again, they're in a Scotland's greatest architectural and gardening elements of your heritage, like, you know, that mixed the engines of the past, that fed folk, a lot of folk, actually, long before the days of the supermarket. And it's a subject for innovation, craftsmanship and skill, famous builders, engineers, and a myriad of exotic floors and techniques there's an awful lot there. There really is. Okay. Right. I can you you and I love little snippets or did you cans? Here's a wee snippet. Fit of you for Newt. Oh well, I bet you didn't ken that Murray House at the bottom of the Canongate had a wall garden. But if you look on Edgar's map of seventeen sixty five, you'll see all Murray House and you'll see the wall garden. And in that wall garden you'll even see that there was a wee glazed summer house. Well it's said that though in summer house was the place where the Treaty of the Union was signed in 1707. No. Ah, it was that, because it was the property of James Ogilvie, the first Earl of Seafield and the Lord Chancellor. And he was one of the key signatories of the treaty. And he was one of the key negotiators. But there was a bit of a stramash going on in the street outside at the time of the signing, so they went into the wall garden and into the greenhouse and that's where it was signed. So the wall gardens he shaped our history in more ways than yin. And you need to think about that day, about the, the Treaty of the Union, because at the time it had a negative impact on the Scots economy. A lot of money flowed south, hmm. and as a result of that, the Scots migrated south. A lot of them went south, and they were favoured by the English landowners because it said that they had the right aptitude, and they were thrifty and hard-working. But most of all, they had a good standard of basic education higher than a lot of other folk that were competing for jobs down there. And I think that's one of the reasons why they were such a grand success. See, yeah, you come up with something else. No, you've been wandering about, uh, as you do, usually do, you're, you're just one of life's wanderers. But you were up in the Aberdeenshire, as it say happens, visiting Pitmedding Gardens in the wall garden out there. Tell us about the planting, the new planting going on there. Well, I I, I was up there last weekend. I, I was at the opening of the, the, the new upper parterre that was designed by Chris Beardshaw. 
and put together with the National Trust staff, Scott and his team and Chris Wardle and a whoene others. And Michty, it's like a breath of fresh air. You know, you'd think it had been there all its life. I, I, I really was so impressed with it. And the most amazing thing is, planted in April, it had never been irrigated, even through that hot spell. And all the plants were thriving and doing away, so it's got a lot of sustainability into it. So well done, National Trust, for a grand job there. Oh, and of course, the wall gardens are very central to the, the theme that we've been speaking about, demands of climate and weather, you know, and I suppose food safety. Food security, that comes into Wall Gardens as well. All thing comes in there, and we'll talk to you a wee bit more about that later, whether it's engineering, climate, sustainability, food, skill transfer, whatever. Wall Gardens were engines of life, and all that stuff is in them as you'll find out as we go engines through. Engines of life, I love your phrases. Thank you, Mr Dave. And we're joined by our broadcast assistant, Finn Nixon. Finn, hello. Hi, I'm fine. Now, before we go any further, congratulations on your graduation in journalism through Robert Gordon University and your special DC Thompson Journalism Award as well. Thin congratulations. We're very, very proud of you. Hey, boys. Oh, oh wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I knew he'd graduated, but I didn't think Kenny got the DC Thompson Award. I, He's a kind of loon, that boy. He's your friend. He's your friend. Okay, fit your focus this episode, then. Well, no, thank you very much. Really appreciate it and for all the support as well. You can Richie was mentioning the heat there, and I wanted to find out more about the weather patterns we're hearing at the minute and how these temperatures really do compare to previous years. So I visited an amateur weatherman in Braemar, Chris Booth, and you'll be hearing a bit more from him later on. Grand, thanks, then. And so to this programme, and it's just been announced that the National Library of Scotland has opened applications for this year's Screever residency that this year will be based in the northeast of Scotland and will put a spotlight on the rich culture in the northeast. And the Aberdeenshire and Aberdeen-based Screever will have the opportunity to develop original work in Doric or northeast Scots and acknowledge the region as a stronghold for the Scots language. Now, to tell us more, we are joined by any of the judges, Alan Bett, Head of Literature and Publishing for Creative Scotland. Welcome, Alan. How are you doing in Edinburgh? I'm doing very well, thanks, Freedon. You're, you're kind of ensconced in B&B Studios, in the lovely studio with Lewis Ritchie. Now, I have to declare an interest here. I'm honoured to be any of the three judges, along with yourself, Alan, and Jackie Cromarty, Head of External Relations at the National Library of Scotland. This is like a fantastic opportunity to raise the profile of Northeast Scots, Doric, as I said, known locally. Now, Alan, let's get down to basics. Fit are we looking for? Just can you identify fit will be the attributes, the skills that we're looking for in the new Screever? There's two sides of it, I would say. I mean, the, the Screever's a writing residency, so we're, we're very keen for the writer to focus on their own work. It's a 12-month residency, so... By the end of that, we'd like that writer to have had time to focus on themselves, their work, and develop something. And that could be in any written form, any creative written form. The other side is our community project or community engagement. So we're very keen for somebody who can look out and engage communities and raise a profile of the language through the creative form. That's the two sides of it. And it's very much up to the individual to pitch themselves and, and their work and their vision for that residency. But is there such a thing as a, a list of, of skills or attributes that can be ticked, like like box ticked? There's a, a very formal job description, but 
I mean, the main thing is they need a creative practice. So we, we want a creative form that they have some sort of profile in. They need to have the language skills. They need to be able to work creatively in Doric. And they need some skills in, as I say, presenting to the public, whether that's digitally, whether that's in person, and working independently and, and developing a programme of activity. So a, part, a big part of this, they, they would need to persuade us that they, they can reach the public. Is that, is that correct? That's definitely part of it. That's one half, I would say, of the residency, but very much we're looking at their own work. Whatever creative form that written work is in, I think it's rare for a writer to have space and time to focus on themselves mm-hmm. and to have a, a room of their own, as you would say. And especially with a Scots focus, it's even rarer. So we see real value in giving them time and space to consider themselves in their own work and develop something so there's a legacy to this residency. Ah, now legacy. What would you hope to be the legacy? Legacy could be twofold as well. I mean, the, the legacy is the work. And that work might be ready by the end of that 12-month residency. It might not be published for a year, two years, or who knows? It might be performed. So it can take many forms. Hopefully there's a legacy in the region as well with the people who are going to engage with our work over that 12-month period. So our, our previous was in Orkney, and we, we know that that's coming to an end now. That's with the poet and creative writer Alison Miller. Mm-hmm. We know that once that comes to an end, that, that, that won't quite be at an end. We, we know there'll be legacy to that. The community will be energised. People will be introduced to Orcadian as a language and through poetry and, and different written forms. So we know there's going to be a legacy in the community as well as a legacy for that creative writer. The profile is important as well, to raise the profile in the community so that folk can see that there's work going on in the language, isn't it? Absolutely. And and the Screever previously was a more of a national role. We have remodelled it to focus on particular areas and particular variations of Scots. So, as I say, Orcadian was the was previous year and, and that's coming to an end now. So, yeah, we, we want to raise awareness of the the richness and the variation within Scots as well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to invite Dave to come in anytime he wants. Again, he'll be hunching to ask some questions as well. But before he does, put in perspective on what this appointment means for Scotland and, and the North East especially. I mean, it means a lot for Scotland, but I'd, I'd prefer to focus more locally on the, on the North East. I think spreading that opportunity for a writer to, to Orkney, to the North East, I think is really important. And recognising and celebrating particular variations of Scots and, and the, as I say, the richness and the variety within Scots, mm-hmm. I, I think is particularly important. So for me, the National Library and Creative Scotland have been very interested in, and I think it's really paid dividends to have that more localised focus on, on language and on that region as well. Fantastic. Dave, you want to come in here? Anything well, that's I, brought to mind? Just a, just a wee quick aside, really, Frida. I, I'm working on something at the moment, another project called The Lyrical Landscape. And it's about the relationship between the landscape of the northeast, its geology, its history, and literature, and poetry, and song, and art. And I just hope that there's some way that Fiverr gets this wonderful post and opportunity. A year of a room of your own, I mean, what a gift. Isn't that a gift? How many folk get that? That's Mm. an amazing thing, just time to be yourself and to think. But I hope whoever gets it is able to think about our relationship with the land. You know, when I was back up in the northeast last weekend, I, I, I really, there's lots of parts of Scotland touch your soul. 
But there's something about the northeast for me that's off a deep, and I don't understand it. I think it's because there's a combination of wildness and manicured and cared for, especially as you drive just doing that wee bit of south of Aberdeen and you look across the, the hills as, as you come down into Angus and you see these rolling fields. There's an awful love has been put into that landscape and hard work over the years, and I just hope that that comes out in the writings or doings or whatever this person does, because to me, the land of the northeast sings in a way that nowhere else in Scotland does. The sunset song. Well, the interesting thing, David, might be that it's a National Library of Scotland residency, so that doesn't mean that the individual needs to sit within the library, but we, we're very keen for them to engage with the Scots language collections in the library. Which are very rich and very deep. Exactly, and one of the previous grievers actually engaged with ornithological work and created poetry connected to that, and oh. that work's now been published with the imagery. So there's yeah. there's everything from film to comics to natural history work to novels and poetry. So that there's a huge wealth of content for them to engage with and then there's a context for them to work and and to bounce off that work so it's a very specific context for them to work within rather than just that that blank Mm -hmm. space yeah it's interesting that you use the word comic there because you know my first introduction to doric uh, on a regular basis was through a colleague i mean when i used to work in the botanic garden a fella called ross kirby if i was a curator and he came for cults. But Ross always used to give me the Dodd and Bunty sketches out of the, the newspaper. <laughs> the Dodd and Bunty's, I'll remember that. <laughs> and, you know, but I, I just, there is something too in a lot of writing about the North East. It, it has a very distinct sense of humour of its own, I feel. I don't know what you feel about that, Frida. Well, I was kind of thinking about your words, wild cultures, but look at after. That just describes me absolutely <laughs> perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that northeast humour again. There it's it coming out, you know. It's droll, dry, usually unexpected. And just to mention that, of course, we did feature Hamish McDonald's book, Scots Birds, remember? Ah, we um, did, yeah. When, when we were talking about the, the, the travels of different different finders and kind of explorers. But it it's that legacy, I think. It's just, just so exciting to hear that there. And again, a lot of folk have contacted me and said, this is a fantastic opportunity. And I think we'll look forward to it. David, any more questions? No, I'm I'm just really looking forward to finding out who it's going to be. And with that in mind, when will we find out? Whoa. It will be in, in, in August, some of the information around this. The deadline's the 8th of August. So hopefully some of your listeners might have a general interest in this, but some might actually see this as an opportunity for them so please go on the National Library of Scotland website and you'll see that opportunity or the Creative Scotland website have a look at the information around that position and if it is something you're interested in ask us Mm -hmm. the person appointed that will be announced sometime towards the end of August beginning of September it should be I, I think I think by the end of August. Yeah, I'll be about that. Yeah, we, we yeah. will be interviewing. Uh, yeah, the, the process will run throughout mid to late August. I'll keep my eyes peeled to the website in September mm-hmm. to see if I get the job. Excellent, and and it is a paid opportunity, of course. Oh, you, you mean you get paid to hear a room of your own? <laughs> my goodness, that's that's amazing, not <laughs> enough, Mister. So, so it's a fifteen fifteen thousand pounds residency over that twelve months, and the expectation is 
that they would spend around a week of the month on this role. What a wonderful opportunity. It's great. Mm-hmm. I, I just uh, Okay, I've got the information here in front of me. Alan, thank you for this. And bide with us, bide with us, and best wishes to add the entrance in the new Doric Screever. Absolutely. The Doric Screever Residency. Right, here's the information. It's open to writers interested in creating new work in Doric and can be based either in the city or the shire. And for more information, going to www.nls, National Library of Scotland, nls.uk. Say that again, www.nls.uk. For you'll find details of the post and food apply. Now, applications close at 5pm Monday the 8th of August. Right. This is a song for Aberdeenshire. It's a track recorded by one of my favourite North East singers, Tom Spears. Crudy near Tara in Aberdeenshire. This is Tom singing A Pickle o' Wheat. Ogin, my love, were a pickle of wheat. Grown out our yon lily white lee, and I may sail a wee wee burned. Awa with that pickle. I went flee, and gin my love were a coffer a goud, and I the keeper o the key. I'd hope that guest van I west, and empty that coffer I would be. And gin my love were a reed reed rose grown upon yon garden wa and I must sail a drapajou it's empty that reed rose I would and there we tremblin' loves on rest. I'd plead my passion o'er the necht And kiss the bud I gently pressed Till fleed a while we mourn and lecht <laughs> Aberdeenshire singer Tom Spears with a song A Pickle O' Wheat so, for news about the new Doric Screever, we stick to the theme of writing in the northeast. As befits Scotland's year of stories, the 10th century Book of Deer, illuminated manuscript, has returned to the northeast of Scotland for the first time in more than a thousand years. We support for the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the Book of Deer Community Heritage Group, has secured the loan of this wee book thought to be the oldest surviving manuscript on loan for Cambridge University Library. And there's new and short Aberdeen Art Gallery, Ray. The book contains the earliest surviving text in Gaelic Scots, dating through the 12th century. So, I had the pleasure of joining guests at Adden Country Park in Mintla, near New Deer in Aberdeenshire, to celebrate the impending arrival of the original book and view the beautiful replica and other artefacts. Now, I found out more about the historic treasure, the, the Book of Deer Project Chair, Anne Simpson. 
It started when the Monastery of Deer was founded, which we think was about 600, by either St Columba or St Drostan, who was one of the followers of Columba. And the book was written a couple of centuries after that, so it's a 9th, 10th century gospel book. Little book, it's not big. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Irish ones, the illuminated ones. No. It's a small, useful t- a tool. But later on, because vellum was really expensive and books were rare, it was used to record land transactions, land grants in Gaelic and that's what makes it really, really important because it's got this earliest known written Gaelic. It then, somewhere between 1100 and 1715, kind of vanished. We've no idea where it was at that time. But in 1715, it turned up in the library of the Bishop of Ely and it was bought by King George I who donated it to Cambridge University. And that's where it's been for And a that's where it's been since 1700 and something, yeah. Right. Now, it was then rediscovered in that library about 1860 by the librarian in Cambridge, Henry Bradshaw, whose bust we saw when we went down a few years ago. The project took oh. a tour of about 30 people uh-huh. down to see the book, and at that time I asked them, would they be willing to lend it to us if we could find a suitable venue and the finance to bring it back to the northeast? I'm coming to which is, which is what we which is what we've done. Um, You've raised a huge amount. Well, we've we've had a fantastic grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Not just the project. The project are the lead partners. But we're in partnership with Aberdeenshire Council, with Aberdeen City Council, Mm -hmm. with the University of Aberdeen, University of Cambridge, and with our archaeologists, Kaminer Archaeology. So there's a partnership of six organisations who've been given this grant of nearly £130,000 to bring the book back to Aberdeen to the Art Gallery for three months from the 2nd of July but also we've got a huge cultural programme which is going online next week Frida with talks, stories activities for children digs, all the rest of it is a wonderful programme being put together So how, how can folk find this They can, this they can find online. out that information from the middle of next week it will be on the Book of Deer website Aye. which is www.bookofdeer.co.uk so if people look on that from next week, we're calling it hashtag Book of Deer 2022. So that's the name of the programme for the summer. I can idea. Can we go around yeah, this the corner? Because I want to see the other bit of the, the yeah, mystery yeah, as well. Yeah. It is a bit of a mystery. It's a mystery it? as to the, where the monastery is. And we've been doing archaeological digs for about 12 years now. And we, we had a very, very successful one at Deer Abbey in 2018, where we certainly found evidence of medieval uh, life. And also of this Nefeltafel board, the stone with the Nefeltafel game had been inscribed onto it. It had been used, we think, as a lid. But the Nefeltafel game is a Viking game, so that makes it even more interesting. Vikings were here. We reckon that. And then we've got a really clever lady in the archaeology team who does paintings Uh of what things could have looked like. So this is a hearth with a couple of guys working around it and the wattle. So this is her interpretation of what the site could have looked like at that point in time. Yeah. So you ruin the other side of right. this exhibition yep. case here. You've got a replica of the book which is lovely. Of course, the, the, we, we the actual a, book we, is in the, the, in the, the museum. The, the book is in the museum, and it, as I say, it will be in the Art Gallery in Aberdeen from the 2nd of July for three months, so if people want to go and see it. It's quite a small book. I can imagine it in the pocket of a monk's habit. And as I say, it's, it's the Gospels that are, are in it. 
This replica, we've actually two replicas, and we've one that was done a number of years ago as part of a feasibility study to look at a heritage centre with the book at its heart. But we're quite happy that we're actually here hosted in this farming museum because the monks would have farmed as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they would have made made beer, they would have uh, had honey, they'd have, you know, grown vegetables and grown crops. So for me, instead of it, this museum is 150 years, it's agricultural industrial revolution. It's been here quite a long time too, but this makes sense to have this aspect of it and look at 4,000 years of history in this park. It's, it's been looked at for a long time. I'm looking at the, the shell. The shell, the shell is a scallop shell which they use on pilgrimages. The pilgrims wore them to show that they were a pilgrim. And one of the things the Book of Deer Project done in the past, pre-COVID, was organised pilgrimages, walks, celebrating some of the Celtic saints and picking up some of the artefacts. Because we, we are about community heritage, so we're interested not just in the Book of Deer, we're interested in uh, a lot of the that, that particular bit of history, the medieval or early medieval period. I, I could spend hours. I know you this. could, yeah. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the day because yeah, yeah. there's a lot of folk there's, gathering there's here. There's folk gathering and here. The music. If the only other thing I wanted to mention was we have had a commemorative poem written for us as a gift I heard about by that. Professor David Wheatley at the University of Aberdeen and it's a wonderful gift to the project. I'm hoping to be uh, able to record that poem. We've had it translated into Doric, we've had it translated into Latin and we've had it translated oh. into Gaelic and we'll tell you more about that when you come through and join us for well, the for the presentation. Well, thank you for okay. your time. I really You're welcome. This You're welcome. It's good. What a fabulous idea! What a fabulous project! Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bukadia Project Chair Anne Simpson, and you can find out more about the special program or events that are planned surrounding the exhibition featuring the original Bukadia at Aberdeen Art Gallery on the website www.aberdeencity.gov.uk. At that launch at Arden Country Park, as you heard, the gathering had the pleasure of hearing a poem specially written for the event by Professor David Wheatley for Aberdeen University. We heard readings in Latin, Gaelic, English and Doric. And we will finish off this programme with Gordon Hay for the Doric board reciting the Doric version. This is another treasure, folks, nay to be missed. So, new mere music. This is for Megan Henderson's new CD, Card Pilgrim Souls. This is the Dawn Chorus.
Megan Henderson in a track card, the Dawn Chorus, for Megan Henderson's new CD, Pilgrim Souls. Appropriate to the theme so far, for the Book of Deer, written its thought at the New Deer Monastery, you can just imagine the work that went on there, with the monks battling bucking climates, aimed to produce food to survive, and that fits into far we're going to be speaking about in this episode with Dave. The skill and the determination against the climate and the emergence of the Scottish wall garden. Dave, over to you. Well, you're talking about the Book of Deer there. I just want to note briefly that Dr. Patrick Neal commented about the gardens that existed around the Abbey of Deer and the orchard at Bewley Priory in his report to the Board of Agriculture called Scottish Gardens and Orchards that was published in 1813. So that just shows you, even then, there was still that link. But you can, folk have tried to protect crops all over Scotland and the British Isles for the weather and the unwanted tension and marauding animals and birds since we first started to cultivate, initially using hedges and hurdles. But it was the Victorian wall garden, without doubt, that was the pinnacle of achievement in that regard. But what do we mean by a wall garden? Well, basically, it's a purpose-built enclosed space with high walls. And these walls generally exceed 10 feet in height. But I know of examples where the walls are 20, even 30 feet high. And they were made out of local stone, like whin, granite, sandstone. But more often than not, they were made out of brick. Smaller, traditional plots that have lower walls I tend to think of them mere as a sort of kale yard. They can, they were the kind of things that were associated with the manse or the schoolhouse, Father Domini bided, or or even the cothouses, kind of the workers on the land were living in. Mm-hmm. And you know, the walls themselves, they were all finished off with a lovely coping stone. Some of them were even buttressed. Some of them were zigzag or certain time and shape. You know, they're amazing things, wall gardens. But basically, a wall garden to me, a Victorian wall garden. It's got great big high walls and it's made out of brick or stone, you know. But is it why are there, say, many wall gardens in Scotland, Dave? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons behind why there's as many. I think there's a link to the Scottish monastic communities and the fact that plants were growing for medieval times and nice, simple structures associated with castles and fortresses, sometimes referred to as a pleasance. You know, these wall gardens, they're always in areas with a good aspect, with good soil, close to a a supply of fresh water. And if you look to the monastic communities, there's examples that were used to grow medicinal and culinary herbs and fruit in places like Paisley Abbey and round about the Bishop's Palace and Glasgow Cathedral precincts and round the cathedrals in St Andrew and up in Aberdeen, even as far north as Kirkwall. We also know that St. Columba was biding in Iona. He sent to Scotia, or Ireland as we call it today, for a gardener, a holy man called Lysrian. And it was the arrival of Lysrian in Iona that was the first recorded presence of any gardener in Scotland. We know that the, the nuns who lived on Iona, they developed a garden in the Priory. And, you know, you can still see working monastic gardens in Scotland today, can Runabout plus Garden Abbey. Been there, yep. You know, there's, you know you've got to remember, this was all a day with being self-sufficient. In the days before, we had a, a network of, you know, roads to get things around about the country. In those days, food travelled by sea. And I, I, th- I think the role 
that wall gardens played was also influenced by social and economic changes. We spoke about the Union of the Crowns, but there was also the work of the agricultural improvers and the impact of the Industrial Revolution. But if folk that's listening want to understand about the development of estate wall gardens in Scotland at a local level, they should hear a look at the Blaw Atlas of Scotland and William Roy's Great Map and all the subsequent Ordnance Survey maps. And they're all available, free of charge on the National Library of Scotland's website. And it's great to make comparisons between them about places you can, because you can see how gardens came and went, how they started small, how they got bigger, and on the inch to the mile, or on the survey maps, you can see the detail right down with inside them. Dave, fit about shape and size around the country. Was there that there? That's another big question, Frida, because they vary a lot. I mean, there are some examples at places like Blair Castle and Gordon Castle that are eight or nine acres. And then there's others at places like Threve and Kelly Castle and Abbotsford that are run about an acre. An acre would feed a household of 10 or 12 folk all year round. Sometimes they were square, sometimes they were rectangular. But there's even examples of them being oval or circular. There's even some that are just tucked into the shape of the land. If you think about the unit in Veryu, it hugs the edge of the bay, it hugs the drive. And there's another wee unit in that mm-hmm. earth at Grunyard Bay. But really, shape and size was determined by need and wealth. And the location had a big impact too because sometimes they were tucked away from the big house and they were hidden with trees for shelter. Sometimes they were orientated in a particular way. In the further south, they were orientated east of south. So the warmest wall received a full hour of sun before noon. But in colder areas like where you are, the access run west-south, so they made the most of the afternoon sun to trap the heat. And that's what Willie Duncan was talking to you about when you mentioned that in your introduction. You know, but there are no things that arose by chance. There was a lot of skill and reasoning behind their construction and, you know, the innovation that was used to make them. Well, that's what I've discovered, you see. I just thought, right, it's just a, a hill of steens run about a bit of land. No way. There's so much planning. Oh, no, there was a lot, of thought, a lot of thought went into them, Frida. Okay, innovation. Fit about the innovation around their design and construction. Were Scots recognised for this? Oh, my goodness. If you go as far back as the Royal Court of David I, he really was innovative about the use of plants for health. It started at Holyrood Abbey, and he asked that abbeys and hospitals be constructed across Scotland, complete with infirmary gardens. And that, that's connected to the work of the Emperor Charlemagne, who had decreed in 800 AD that a list of plants be grown across the country for the health of the people. But if we come forward in time, there's folk like John Reed and his work with Scots Gairdner, published in 1683, it's fully do's and don'ts regarding running estate gardens. Then there's another man, Sir James Justice of Crichton. He wrote a wonderful book called The Scots Gardeners Directly, particularly adapted to the climate of Scotland. And he wrote that in 1754. And he was an innovative fella. He grew pineapples back then in bark pits. He even wrote to Philip Miller, the Englishman of Scotch descent who wrote Miller's Dictionary, that in 1728 he ate fruits on his pineapples here in Scotland. Hmm. And then he, he come to the Earl of Dunmore, an own great big wall garden that belongs to the National Trust called the Pineapple. That place was built specifically for growing nothing but pineapples. The summer house <laughs> itself has a great big stone oh, pineapple on the top of it. In 1761, the whole place was filled with frames and hot houses. 
You get James Abercrombie. He wrote the famous book, The Gearness Calendar. It's still full of prudent and relevant advice today. Around the time of the Gardner's calendar, there was a fellow called Dr. John Hope, who we spoke about before, and it was him that moved the garden that became the RBG from its site on Waverley Station down to Leith Walk. And if you look at the illustration of that garden, it's a charming wee drawing. You can see the glass houses and the walls and his famous rhubarb chart. And then there's John Claudius Loudon. He invented the glazing bar. And then there's a fellow called James McPhail, he was head gardener to Lord Hawkesbury, away doing south, and he wrote a 300-page treatise on the cultivation of cucumbers in 1794. <laughs> Charles McIntosh, he wrote a wonderful publication called The Greenhouse, Hot House and Stove. It's beautifully illustrated. And we mustn't forget Walter Nicol. You know, he wrote a book called The Scots Forcing Gardener. It's full of greenhouses of all shapes and sizes, all designed for the production of exotic fruits. You know, the list goes on and on of the innovation. Air drains, flues for heated walls, outshot glass copes. Can you imagine a wall with a glass lid on it, just above a fruit tree, and then a big hessian carpet coming down the front at night for the frost. There was greenhouses that had sloping back walls with fruit on them, dipping ponds, propagation pits, stoves and conservatories for temperate and tropical plants, heated forcing pits, hotbeds. I tell you, there must have been an awful horseman you run about the place <laughs> to fuel all this. It was <laughs> phenomenal. Blanching pots. Then you come into the 1800s and you've got boilers for steam and ventilation systems and greenhouses made in a ridge and furrow design to capture the maximum amount of light. Everything for that. They even had movable greenhouses. They sat on rails and you could slide them over the pits so that you could start plants off in the greenhouse and then shift the roof down and then the plants would be growing underneath it. Okay. You know, it, it, it's just absolutely incredible. And then firms like Mackenzie and Munker for Edinburgh who were famed for their beautiful wooden glass houses and Simpson and Farrer who built the winter gardens at Queen's Park and in Springburn and McFarlane and co, who made components for the Kibble Palace that was moved and changed its site by James Boyd and son, who also built the Palm House at Glasnevin. I mean, Scotland, pardon the pun, was a hotbed of innovation and wall gardens. There's no doubt about that at all. I was listening to the excitement in your voice, you know, and yeah. I was speaking to the renowned cook and chef Wendy Barry and looking at her new book and that will be featured in later editions speaking about food security food safety and the amount of skills Wendy kind of bemoans the fact that we've lost the skills to grow real food these days these things may well have to come back Dave you know the importance of wall gardens and the skills that we've lost maybe resurrect them again and try and find them this could well come into play I think that's something that's very true because wall gardens were very important, not only in the life of the big estates, but in the life of the community, you know, and, and that was something that was beyond the production of food and flowers and space for relaxation for the family and the household staff and sometimes the estate workers because these places employed large numbers of men and boys and, and women. They provided an opportunity to learn and hone your skills and transfer skills about the production of food all year round. You know, that phrase I used, engines of life, is so important because they drove job opportunities, not only in the garden, but in the big house and in the wider community. I mean, my own career, I, I started, not a lot of folk getting this, I started in an estate that was very much like that. And 
it was something that shaped the rest of my career, you know. Mm -hmm. It enabled me to go in a direction I never imagined when I left school. And I mean, the era of the wall garden, pot boy to apprentice, under gardener to journeyman, foreman to head gardener, and ultimately curator. I mean, wall gardens shaped individual lives. They shaped communities. They allowed folk to stay in an area or to move on as they chose. They were centers of skill and learning and opportunity. And nothing makes me sadder than when I see them lying empty. I was so fortunate, Frida. I had the remains of the day in these places in my youth. Mm. And I never really realized how important it was at yeah. the time, but I do now. Alan, are you listening to this with intent? Are you are you a gardener in any way, shape or form? I'm not, but I'm listening to it with some recognition because I've had a walled garden in my last property. It was a kind of genteel version, Victorian. But I grew up on a farm in rural Persia. So, I, huh? I mean, David mentioned some of the the spaces there. I pick berries every summer of my youth. And uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I remember two very different versions in different parts of my life for very different purposes. Aye. I had a, a, a father and a grandfather who had about a couple of acres of the, what's now known as a market garden. Every summer, uh, my brother and I had to pick berries. And it was just one of the delights and the memories. You could, and I, I long for that real taste of strawberries mm. once again. I think Brock about the decline then, David. Ah, oh, Frida, that's, that's a complicated thing. I think the social and the economic pressures of the First World War, and to a lesser extent World War Two, you know, really it was World War Two that really put the death knell on the era of the Great Estates. And then in the 1960s, the boom in light industry and the availability of higher education and folk had different aspirations. And Aubrey thought I was mad when I went away to be a gardener. And I mean, we, we nearly lost all of the wall gardens in the country if it hadn't been for the efforts of folk like the National Trust and the National Trust for Scotland and Historic Environment Scotland and English Heritage. And a, a big role was played by a lot of private estate owners who were a member of the Historic Houses Association. Without their effort in the 70s and 80s, we would have lost these places forever. And, you know, some of them are in rude health now. There's no doubt about that. And others mm -hmm. are reinventing themselves with great originality. But they remain challenged by climate change and skill shortage in particular, misunderstanding, the need for investment. And when you're right, when you think about the challenge we face today around food security, sustainability, health and well-being, biodiversity, we need these inspiring engines of life more than ever. I think I tell you about one of the saddest things I came across. I was looking at uh, a forest with a friend in Midlothian, and we came across a disused wall garden just in decline, but the metal gate was still there. And on the metal gate, in big letters carved in metal, was the date 1914. Ooh. And inside there was just the wind was just taking the little little fluffy bits from the willow herb blown across that garden just at that moment when the sun hit. It was quite a poignant moment. Thank you, Dave. As ever, you provide a treasure of information. And here's another appropriate bit of music dedicated to Dave Mitchell, a track card, Wise, through the band Imar.
track had Y's for the band Imar. You now, earlier we were speaking about wall gardens, and of course we're near far away from dealing with climate change in wall gardens to dealing with the hottest temperatures ever recorded in some parts of the UK and Scotland. Now, Finn, you've been looking at some of the, the past data that have you knew found out, and maybe have you been looking at the future, just future findings? Well, some findings come from the weatherman that I mentioned earlier, Chris Booth. But I would say, as you mentioned, Floors Castle there, and that was where the new record for Scotland was set uh, last Tuesday, 35.1 degrees. Wow. Which, compared to the previous record set in 2003 of 32.9, you know, there's quite a a big difference there. And, of course, that all relates to climate change. And what we're also seeing is, with the weather patterns, we've had very little rainfall in parts of Scotland, especially in the east coast. And, you know, the area that Crispeuf covers... Uh, D side, the river D is actually at moderate scarcity, and quite a few of the rivers in Scotland are, are there as well. Mm-hmm. So that kind of tells you, you know, gives you a picture that that's also a, a real issue at the minute. So yeah, Chris Booth, he's an amateur weatherman, and he's based in Braemar, Aberdeenshire. He forecasts the weather for the area through the Braemar, Ballaton, and D side weather page, mm-hmm. and of course that means he keeps a, a key eye on how the weather patterns are changing, especially with climate change. And, and fit was happening last week when we had that really extreme heat. Now, Chris explained how these extreme temperatures compare to fit he's been seeing in recent years. 2018 was warm. We had some warm days in 2020. Uh, a lot of people forget, I think it was 2018 or 2019, we had a prolonged heat wave, although it wasn't 30 degrees, but it was steady 25 so for two to three weeks. So... Global warming is a, is a massive problem. Can you maybe give us an idea of what records were broken locally here in Deeside and how much of a difference they were from the, the previous records? So the previous record, Aboyne, was 30.1. And then on the Monday, it went to 30.8. And then we saw the big heat, even though we had a much cloudier day, it was much windier, but the heat actually, because it was being pushed up when the wind calmed, and the sun then broke out, that's when we got the most heat because everything was fine and calm and we actually did 30, 31.8 there. Um, and then Balmoral, obviously their record was 29.9 and now it's 30.3, so it just hit over. Braemar didn't get a new record, which is currently standing at 30 degrees, which is funny because the old weather station, just as when you come into the village, they've um, hit 30 degrees, not above. So three times Braemar's had 30 degrees, but it's never been over. That's that's kind of it from a local point of view for, for actual Met Office data in terms of amateur weather stations. Plenty of new records, 32, 33, Ballater, uh, you know, and all these kind of unique spots where we've got weather stations that nobody knows about. But there was stations that were, was hotter. So if you look down in the borders, 35.1 at Floors Castle, where there's actually, you know, like Coldstream, Kelso, that kind of area, 36, 37 on the amateur stations. I, I think you mentioned to me that you thought that maybe in August there could be records broken again. What are you seeing right now that makes you think that that's going to happen again? What I've seen is we, we see the same kind of setup. So everything's kind of coming from the Azores. You look at where the jet stream is. The high pressure seems to be coming again from the Azores and it looks like we could have settled weather the first week of August, towards the end of the first week of August. There is hints that England, again, 40 degrees, 
the border's 34. And then as you come up towards where we are, you know, you're looking at 28, 29 at the moment. What was it like being here when it was in the 30s? You know, how did it feel? You know, it, it was hot, do you know? There's, there's no getting away from the fact it was hot. The ground and everything's so dry as well, and we haven't had much rainfall really over the last few months, so everything's really, really dry as well. You know, for England, you're not surprised you're seeing those fires. And I think if we had another couple of days here with those temperatures, we would have probably seen something up here. Especially on the East Coast, we've seen real, kind of a real dry spell. What are the patterns that you're seeing there and how does it compare to previous summers? So this year is very, very dry. I don't think I've ever seen the river so low. What we've got this year is we've got more high pressure dominating and blocking the weather fronts coming in. So you see the big patterns coming in and it hits the west, but the time it makes its way to where we are, they're, they're so weak that you're just getting spits and spots of rain. How does that work in terms of severe heat? You know, is there a pattern there as well, a similar pattern, or is it more sporadic? So you can see, I think, out of the 20 days of record temperatures, they've all come from 2003. Okay. So you can see there's a massive shift. Okay. If you think when records began to where we are now, so you've got 2003, 2004, 2006, 2008. Every couple of years it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. So the Met Office had forecasted something like by 2050 we're going to see 40 degrees in the UK. Well, here we are at 2022 we've seen 40 degrees in the UK. I wouldn't be surprised if Scotland could be touching 40 within the next five. Touching 40. It was Chris Booth speaking to your Finn who joins us in the studio. And Finn, thank you for that. Now, I'm going to ask Abdi. Has, uh, Alan, you first. Have you seen any evidence of climate change? What about you? I have, just as everyone has. I remember walking up Portobello, I think, two or three years ago, and it was just pre-Christmas and people were on the beach in their in their shorts and T-shirt. It was so mm-hmm. it was so nice and so mild, but I suppose more so if I look back over a period, and I mean, this isn't scientific, it's through the a kind of nostalgic lens, but as I say, I grew up on on a farm in rural Perthshire and, and everything was seasonal. You, you were so dependent on the weather. And and it felt life felt seasonal, so hot summers, berry picking, cold mm-hmm. cold winters, snow and so on. It, it felt like those traditional seasons no longer seem to be with us in quite that same way. It's extreme. You can't fit I've been noticing. And maybe I, I know this maybe sounds a bit dark. I, I kinda remember seeing any grasshoppers or daddy long legs. Grasshoppers and daddy long legs are not not very common to be seen at the moment. Somebody else noticed that. I would say I've not seen as many as I did in my youth, but I'm maybe not looking as hard, you know. I wonder what's causing that, um, but grasshoppers. Yeah, I've had a lot of daddy long legs, green flies. There's been a wee of them dancing around about here the last fortnight. So, ah, yeah, up here. It's funny. You know. It's just weird. It's just the whole thing, as you say, that the, the seasons are changing, but the extremes are, are, are the challenges, of course, Dave. Yeah, I, I think the the extremes are there. I mean, I, I've been managing change with the weather all my gardening life, Frida. It's nothing new. And it was awful sad this week to see that James Lovelock passed on his birthday at 103. You oh, know, James man, Lovelock, man yeah. Gaia Theory. We were well warned about all this. And I personally, I think it's past the tipping point. Well, on that note, we'll try and cheer folk up again. Um, before we finish, because we've got a fantastic opportunity here, Gordon Hay reading a poem for the Book of the Year 
um, welcome at Arden Country Park. And that takes us to the I Know This programme. And it's been a busy in again. So for the team, Richie Werner, David Mitchell and Finn Nixon, and our special guest, Alan Bett for Creative Scotland. Alan, thank you for joining us. Have you enjoyed your session? I have. Thank you, Frida, and thank you, everyone. It's been great to not only speak with the screen and let your listeners know, but to hear about all these different subjects as well, the Book of Deer, Walled Gardens, and, and just to hear the Scots language. Mm. So thank you so much. Aye. And come back and join us any time you like. You'll Will be do. half a welcome. Right, we've finished with the music specially written to celebrate the return of the Book of Deer that we were speaking about earlier. Music written by Richard Ingham and at a track called Cathal's Banquet. And as promised, Gordon Hay reads the poem that was specially written by Professor David Wheatley at the Aberdeen University. Again, to celebrate the homecoming of the Book of Deer to the northeast. This is Gordon Hay, reading the Doric version. Welcome to the Book of Deer. Anent the Abbey of Deer, my heed is follow monks of the Helands and Islands. Say I've saddled in an ert it is neither to think about mountains and islands without deval. The warla yont is a how we nukes a feathered dwam to my screven. Can you clap a tyke's heed as you screve out the gospel? Your letters sprout tyke's heeds. But fit about the title to our grun, a covenant's for our clachin, a spirit at the abbot. Fa said, I the margin, anent the miracles. Here, says I, laying a finger on the manuscript, is far twa grimmer's trist, eke out revelation, say there's no twa St. John the Evangelists, and saith, nay Adam, was the first chill. Betimes the monastery vanished, and Abbey took its place for your stannin of new. But I, a kent, would a fin ye, I kent far and fan the scrattens o' my quell nib would turn to words a year long.